Welcome to the Westminster Pulpit, an extension of the worship ministry at Westminster Presbyterian Church in Lancaster, Pennsylvania. Please contact us for permission before reproducing this message in any format, and may this sermon nurture your life in a meaningful way as we proclaim our Savior. We now join Executive Pastor Dr. Tucker York. I invite you to turn with me to Hebrews chapter 2. Let's be looking at verses 5 through 18. My wife and I have six sons and a daughter, so all of them have many brothers. And they are all different, but share some common similarities in appearance and in personality. To some extent, they all feature something of the York family package. Occasionally, two of them will be mistaken for twins by someone who has not yet discerned their subtle differences. Our passage this morning is glorious and rich, which gives God's stamp of immeasurable dignity on fallen humanity, affirming God's will, that he considered it worthwhile to send his only son into the world to take up our nature, except for our fallen nature, to redeem us, and a redeemer who is unashamed to call us his brothers. As we continue to marvel the glory of the incarnation during this season, let us hear and heed from God's word here in Hebrews 2, verses 5 through 18. For it was not to angels that God subjected the world to come, of which we are speaking. It has been testified somewhere, what is man that you are mindful of him, or the son of man that you care for him? You made him for a little while lower than the angels. You have crowned him with glory and honor, putting everything in subjection under his feet. Now, in putting everything in subjection to him, he left nothing outside his control. At present, we do not see everything in subjection to him. But we see him, who for a little while was made lower than the angels, namely Jesus, crowned with glory and honor because of the suffering of death, so that by the grace of God he might taste death death for everyone. For it was fitting that he, for whom and by whom all things exist, in bringing many sons to glory, should make the founder of their salvation perfect through suffering. For he who sanctifies and those who are sanctified all have one source. That's why he is not ashamed to call them brothers, saying, I will tell of your name to my brothers. In the midst of the congregation, I will sing your praise. And again, I will put my trust in him. And again, behold, I and the children God has given me. Since therefore the children share in flesh and blood, he himself likewise partook of the same things, that through death he might destroy the one who has the power of death, that is, the devil, and deliver all those who through fear of death were subject to lifelong slavery. For surely it is not angels that he helps, but he helps the offspring of Abraham. Therefore, He had to be made like his brothers in every respect, so that he might become a merciful and faithful high priest in the service of God, to make propitiation for the sins of the people. For for because he himself has suffered when tempted, he's able to help those who are being tempted. This is God's word. Father, I would ask this morning that the words of my mouth 
And that the meditations of each of our hearts might be pleasing and acceptable in your sight, O Lord, our rock and our redeemer. Amen. Muslims balk at the Christian understanding that Jesus is the Son of God come in the flesh. From the perspective of Islam, it is beneath God to take up human nature. The idea that God has a son who took on human flesh, who subjected himself to the miseries of this life, to suffer torture from the hands of evil men is anathema. The Jews and the Greeks and the Romans who first heard the gospel message hardly thought any different. For the Jews, God is one and too holy to participate in a human body. The Greeks and the Romans had the notion that the gods took human form and even procreated heroes, but the proposition that God would suffer and die to remove our sins from us was complete madness. And so the story of the incarnation and the message of the cross remains foolish to the carnal mind, even to those who are religious. We would remind ourselves and others that before we judge what God can or cannot do, let God speak for himself. The book of Hebrews opens with the expression that it was in the past that God spoke through his prophets, but in these latter days he has spoken by his Son. Is it too incredible to believe that if God is love, as the Bible proposes, and if God desires reconciliation with his fallen creatures, as both the Old and the New Testaments testify, that God might pursue any means necessary for the magnification of his own glory to secure redemption for his lost children. And so with references to Psalm 8 and 22 and Isaiah 8, let us consider God's vision for man, God's provision for man, and God's mediation for man. The author of Hebrews applies Psalm 8, which celebrates the dignity of man in creation, to the glory and the exaltation of Christ, the second Adam, the true king of all of creation. In the beginning, God made man, male and female, in his own image, after his own likeness. But then due to the fall of our first parents, our dignity was polluted, ruined by sin and the curse that followed. Psalm 8 testifies that God made man a little lower than the heavenly beings, the word in the original Hebrew of Psalm 8 is Elohim, which is the, the majestic plural of God. But that word can also be used elsewhere in the Old Testament to refer to the gods, namely the heavenly host. And in interpretive tradition, going back to the Septuagint, the Greek translation of the Old Testament, which was to be known primarily by the New Testament authors, it's been understood that David was speaking of the angels. And that's clearly how the author of Hebrews understands David saying that, that man was made a little lower than the angels, with less visible glory than the angels. 
And though in our human nature we are base and we are fallen, it remains God's vision to redeem us, to restore us, and one day actually sit in judgment over the angels, as Paul testifies in 1 Corinthians 6. And so a key point that the author of Hebrews is making is that we not be tempted to make too much of angels. Hebrews 1 has already demonstrated that Jesus is superior to the angels. The angels are not our mediators. It is Christ alone. And if one day we will sit in judgment upon them, why solely the gospel by being preoccupied with angels or saints or Mary or any Christian leader, or anybody else who is not deserving of the honor and the devotion and the worship that belongs to Christ and to Christ alone. Hebrews uses Psalm 8 to speak of the not yet fulfilled lordship of Jesus Christ. Verse 8 says, Now, in putting everything in subjection to him, he left nothing outside his control. At present, we don't see everything in subjection to him. What David was looking forward to was not that man would have all things in subject to him, but his successor, the son of David, the heir to his throne, who alone is worthy to have all things in subjection to him. And yet now we do not yet see it. We are still waiting for his triumphant return. Verse 9 adds, We see him who for a little while was made lower than the angels, namely Jesus, crowned with glory and honor because of the suffering of death. The glory of the incarnation is that the Son of God who ruled over the angels at God's right hand, stepped down, was made man, veiled in flesh as we just sung, with less visible glory than the angels for a little while. And by his perfect and righteous life and submission to the will of his Father, he suffered the horrors of death on a cross, but is now crowned with glory and honor. Verse 8 looks forward to that day when everything will be in subjection under Jesus' feet. You recall the scene from Joshua when he and the Israelites defeated the Canaanite nations and Joshua had his commanders put their feet on the necks of the defeated kings, a symbol of victory. And such is a fitting picture of the lordship of Jesus Christ, who knows no rivals. Theologian Abraham Kuyper famously said, There is not one square inch of all of creation where Jesus does not declare, Mine. There are no challengers to Jesus' throne. In a Greek Orthodox wedding tradition, the bride and groom are crowned as the king and queen of creation, a beautiful reminder that we were crowned in the garden. And yet, our crowns are now tarnished. We have diminished our royal status. But Jesus, by his humiliation, has been exalted and crowned. By assuming 
by full and complete human nature, Jesus declares that you and I are redeemable. He restores our dignity and our proper place in creation. And God's vision is to crown us once again as his vice regents ruling over our new heavens and new earth. To fulfill this glorious vision, God must make provision for man. According to the will of God, Jesus tasted death for everyone whom the Lord calls his own. Psalm 34 says, taste and see that the Lord is good. Jesus tasted the bitterness of death, that you and I might taste the sweetness of life reunited with God. And why would he do this? According to verse 10, to bring many sons to glory. The author makes it unmistakably clear that the one for whom and by whom all things exist, our maker, the founder of our salvation, was made perfect through suffering. Our creator is our redeemer, the one who gave us life, who gave us the law, the one to whom we owe obedience, the one before whom we rebelled. And justly deserving his wrath and displeasure is the one who went out of his way to save us, to reclaim us, to remake us, and to bring us home to glory as the adopted children of God. So did Jesus really have to be made perfect? Well, in reference to his human nature, he learned. He grew Luke in his gospel tells us that he increased in wisdom and stature and favor with God and with man. He endured testing, being tempted repeatedly by the devil after weeks of fasting. He is a perfected Savior who perfectly satisfied the law and the penalties required for our punishment. We are perfected by suffering, and so was he. His suffering was voluntary vicarious. And by perfection, the author speaks of the completion of the mission that his father gave him. The great shepherd of the sheep became a sheep to lay down his life for the flock. And after his sacrificial death, he was exalted on high. Like the patriarch Joseph and Job and Moses and David, Jesus experienced the J-curve. First going down, made low, before rising up to be exalted on high into glory. And verses 11 to 13 go on to demonstrate that God provided for man an elder brother, that you and I might enjoy the status as adopted sons and daughters of the king. Verse 11 says that, the one who sanctifies and those who are sanctified all have one source, and that's why he is not ashamed to call them brothers. It was God who sanctified his people and the priest in the Old Testament to set them apart from the unholy and unclean nations around them. On numerous occasions, Jesus was touched by the unclean, the outcast, the lepers, the blind, the lame a woman with a bleeding problem, a sinful woman who cleaned and washed away his feet with her tears and her hair. In each of those occasions, sinners did not make Jesus unclean. 
He made them clean. And rather than reject them or be ashamed of them, he welcomed them and he welcomes us into his father's house. Perhaps you can remember a time when you were shamed by an older brother or sister, picked on in front of their friends, humiliated for being younger, clumsy, saying something foolish. Or perhaps you as an older sibling, your parents made you take your younger brother or sister along to your shame and your embarrassment. Joseph the patriarch was not ashamed of his brothers, nor was he vindictive when they came in desperation to Egypt to buy food from him during the famine. In the flesh, Joseph had every right to pass judgment upon them, to punish them for selling him into slavery. He did teach them a valuable lesson, learning the condition of their hearts. But God had delivered Joseph from a heart of bitterness, from vengeful thoughts, raising him up out of the pit, making him the savior of Egypt. Overwhelmed with the goodness of God and the humble sacrifice of Judah, who was willing to take the place of their brother Benjamin, Joseph could not help himself but show mercy and kindness to his estranged brothers and bring reconciliation to the house of Jacob. The Bible is full of failed older brothers. Cain, Esau, Reuben, Aaron, David's older brothers. It was the duty of the older brother, of the prodigal, to go after him, to rescue him from the far country and bring him safely home. The original audience first hearing Jesus' parable would have understood that. That it was not just the younger brother who failed by his profligate lifestyle, but the older brother for his pride, greed, and self-righteousness. Jesus is the true elder brother who came after us, who was not ashamed of us, who did not resent us for spoiling his father's good creation, who did not come wielding a rod to beat us into submission, but came to rescue us and restore us. Why? Because we are his reward. For all of his trials, his triumphs over sin and death on the cross, the Father gave us to the Son. Verse 13 says, The Lord speaks, I will put my trust in him. And again, behold, I and the children God has given me. Isaiah 53.10, When his soul makes an offering for guilt, he shall see his offspring. We are that offspring. We are the children given to him. We are the Father's reward to the Son. I trust that you can imagine or perhaps have witnessed a little boy or a little girl who longed to have a little brother or sister. Perhaps that was you as a child, or perhaps you have seen this in one of your only children. It is a good and God-given desire when a child wants the connection and fellowship and shared experience of a playmate. Years ago, we hosted a girl from China who was an only child. She's from an entire generation of only children and looked to her cousins to receive what she never had from brothers and sisters. The miracle of God's grace is that he and the son desired to share the joy of their fellowship with us. 
The triune God didn't need to add us to the family of God. But for the magnification of their, of their own glory and for the joy of bestowing grace and mercy on the undeserving, he chose to include you and I. We see a glimmer of this glory every time a family chooses adoption or provides foster care for a child, putting on display the delight of bestowing the blessing of family on those who have been robbed of it by our broken world. We have many beautiful examples of this in our congregation. Jesus said in John 17, 6, I have manifested your name to the people whom you gave me out of the world. Yours they were, and you gave them to me. Ours is a Savior, an older brother who did not hoard his father's inheritance, but freely shares it with us to those who believe in his name and are willing to bear the name of Jesus Christ. Lastly, we find in Jesus God's mediation for man, a merciful and faithful high priest. The author here emphasizes Jesus' humanity who shared in the flesh and blood with the children given to him that through death he might destroy the one who has the power of death, that is, the devil. The prevailing theory that dominated the church's understanding of the cross for a thousand years was that Jesus paid a ransom to the devil. This idea is illustrated in C.S. Lewis's Aslan from The Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe, who dies to ransom the traitor Edmund so the white witch will renounce her claim on him. It was Anselm of Canterbury in the 11th century in his book, Cur Deus Homo, or Why God Became Man, that we first received the more biblical understanding that Jesus saved us from the wrath of God. The devil is not our biggest threat. It's the holiness of God. The devil may hold the power of death, but it's God who holds over us the threat of eternal punishment for our sins. The offense, our offense to God is great. And only the perfect man, the God-man, was able to overcome it. The debt was too massive for us to pay. But Jesus paid it in full to satisfy the righteous requirements of God by his perfect life and his sacrificial death. Poet S.W. Gandhi writes, He hell and hell laid low, made sin he sin overthrew. Bowed to the grave, destroyed it so, and death by dying slew. In a beautiful scene from the final book in the Harry Potter series, Harry realizes that he will have to die to save his friends. He reads 1 Corinthians 15, 26, inscribed on his parents' tombstone. The last enemy that shall be destroyed is death. It strengthens Harry's resolve. His parents had sacrificed themselves for him. He must do the same for those he loves. Sacrifice is woven into the fabric of reality. It's glorious. Among the last thing that Jesus said to his disciples was, Greater love is no one than this, 
that someone laid down his life for his friends. In verse 15, as our mediator, Jesus delivers all those who through fear of death were subject to lifelong slavery. It's only natural for people to fear death, but death is not natural. It is not what God intended for us. It is a parasite, a consequence of the fall. And it's understandable that people should dread death, but believers need not fear it. Senior saints often welcome death after a long and full life, meaning that their trials are over and they are going home to glory. It is crushing when a loved one dies in his or her prime or we have to bury a child. Friend, take your fear of death to the foot of the cross and bury it at the feet of Jesus. May it not enslave you. Jesus has conquered death. Nothing in this life, there's nothing in this life that you will miss when you enter glory. The joy of the redeemed for all eternity will drown out all the sorrows of this sad world. With the final reference to the angels in verse 16, the author writes, For surely it is not angels that he helps, but the offspring of Abraham. Salvation is for humans only, for those made in the image of God, not the angels. The apostle Peter will later write, about the things into which the angels long to look, as though we are on display in the grand drama of God's redemptive story, about which the angels can only marvel. And so with climax regarding the mediation of Christ, verse 17 says, Therefore he had to be made like his brothers in every respect, so that he might become a merciful and faithful high priest in the service of God to make propitiation for the sins of the people. Some may ask, why can't God just forgive sins? The cost was too high. God's holiness and his justice are no trivial matters. Aaron and Moses and the Levites were not play-acting when they constructed the tabernacle, fashioned the furniture, and went about sacrificing bulls, rams, and goats to atone for the people's sins. Men tragically died when they handled the sacrifices in a cavalier manner. Hebrews will go on to tell us in a later chapter that the blood of all these animals never take away our sins. They were temporary. Just as the priests were temporary, they never lasted. They wore out and died. Israel had to keep anointing another high priest. The people needed a truly merciful and faithful high priest that last. At last, he did come. And not to offer the blood of animals, but his own righteous blood to make a final sacrifice. Once and for all, for the sins of God's people, past, present, and future. That's why, among Jesus' last words, we read, It is finished. There remains no more sacrifice for sins because Jesus has accomplished it. Friend, 
Stop trying to pay for your sins. Stop trying to punish yourself and make yourself clean and acceptable with God. Be made right with God by embracing the sacrifice of Jesus Christ, who made propitiation for your sins, who removed your stains, cleanses your soul, has paid your debt, and has made you acceptable before the Father, who no longer regards you as an object of his wrath, but a well-loved child. And finally, in his service of mediation, verse 18 says, For because he himself suffered when tempted, he is able to help those who are being tempted. Hebrews 4, verse 15 goes on to add, For we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who in every respect has been tempted as we are, yet without sin. Others may fail to sympathize with your struggles with temptation, but Jesus will not. He has experienced every temptation known to man and more, and resisted it to the end, remaining pure and unblemished before God. In mere Christianity, C.S. Lewis memorably writes, A silly idea is current that good people do not know what temptation means. This is an obvious lie. Only those who try to resist temptation know how strong it is. After all, you find out the strength of the German army, army by fighting against it, not by giving in. You find out the strength of the wind by trying to walk against it, not by lying down. A man who gives in to temptation after five minutes simply does not know what it would have been like an hour later. That is why bad people, in one sense, know very little about badness. They have lived a sheltered life by always giving in. We never find out the strength of the evil impulse inside us until we try to fight it. In Christ, because he was the only man who never yielded to temptation, is also the only man who knows to the full what temptation means, the only complete realist. You think you are suffering temptation. You don't even know the full extent of it. But God is faithful. He will not let you be tempted beyond your ability. But with the temptation, he will also provide the way of escape that you may be able to endure it. There is no man or woman more sympathetic to your needs than our great and merciful high priest. Missionaries David and Svea Flood left Sweden with their two-year-old son in 1912 to go to the region of Africa that we now know as the Democratic Republic of Congo, the origin of many of our refugees. The chief of the local tribe would not allow this couple to enter the village called Dolira, nor work directly with the people. Their only contact was with a young boy who came out every week to sell them chicken, chickens and eggs. And so under these limited conditions, the missionary couple committed themselves to prayer. And Svea, the wife, was determined to witness to the young boy. In time, he came to faith in Christ. Then the couple had their second child, a daughter. But weakened in her health by malaria, the mother, days later, died. Completely devastated, the father gave the daughter named Ana 
to another missionary couple and returned home to Sweden with his son, bitter at God. Sadly, this adoptive missionary couple also caught disease and died, and so another couple took up the little girl and nicknamed her Aggie and later returned to the United States. The girl grew up and one day read in a magazine an article about how her mother had led a little boy to Christ before her death. The boy grew up, started a school in the village, led the students to Christ, who in turn led their parents to Christ, and even the chief of the village. 600 Christians in this small village, thanks to the prayers and efforts of David and Svea Flood. Filled with amazement at this realization, Aggie sought out her birth father back in Sweden, who was now old, ill, and alcoholic and still angry at God. As he listened to the story, God softened his heart. And through tears of repentance, his faith was restored. He had almost given up on God, but God had not given up on him sending him his dear daughter to bring him the good news and renew his faith in God as his mediator. But the story doesn't end there. Years later, Aggie and her husband attended a world evangelism conference in London. And there, a man shared, the, <clears throat> a man shared about the spread of the gospel in Zaire, also known as the Democratic Republic of Congo. There were 110 thousand baptized believers in this country. Aggie wanted to meet this man and find out whether he knew her parents. He did. It was her mother, Savea Flood, that led him to Christ. He had been the little boy from the village. Aggie hugged him with overwhelming gratitude. Her mother had died when all hope had seemed lost. But by her parents' prayers, the Congolese people had received an abundant harvest in answer to their prayers. We may be tempted to think that our prayers, our ministries, and our piety to God are in vain when we do not see the results that we had hoped for. We may never know. We may not know in this life the impact of our service until we reach glory. But the message of Hebrews is to encourage us to run our race with perseverance, to keep our eyes fixed on Jesus, the author and perfecter of our faith. In Jesus, God has restored his vision to redeem humanity, that we might reign with him and rule over a new heavens and a new earth. In Christ, God has provided for us an elder brother, he not only merits, but shares the inheritance with his brothers and sisters, sons and daughters of the king. And in Christ, we have a merciful and faithful high priest who mediates a reconciled relationship with God, making propitiation for our sins, nailing them to the cross. As we enter a new year, hold fast to Christ. Trust him to meet you in your trials and that he will faithfully bring you and I home on that great and awesome day when all things visible and invisible will be subject to his righteous rule forever and ever.
Let's pray. Our gracious God, our mighty King and glorious Savior, we praise you for giving us Jesus, the one who is our merciful and faithful high priest, who reconciles us to you, who gives us strength in our race, enables us to overcome temptations, and we pray that you would help us to keep our eyes fixed on him as we enter a new year. We pray this in Jesus' name. The Westminster Pulpit is courtesy of Westminster Presbyterian Church in Lancaster, Pennsylvania. You are welcome to worship with us on Sunday mornings at 8 or 11 a.m. To learn more or have questions about the gift of salvation through Christ Jesus our Savior, contact us at westpca.com. Thank you, and may Christ be glorified through this ministry, the Westminster Pulpit.